Good evening again. <laughs> there are lesson outlines available, and if you did not pick one up and would like to use one this evening to accompany the lesson, uh, if you raise your hand, I know there'll be some young, younger men who will grab some of those and come around and, and make sure that each one gets one of those lesson outlines that's wanting one. And while they're passing out those um, outlines, if you do wish to follow along in your Bible or your electronic device, you can open it or turn it to uh, Revelation chapter 4, and that'll be the first text that we'll be looking at and reading in a few moments. What a privilege we have be able to gather together freely to worship God, to study His Word, to be reminded and encouraged of, of who our God is and who He wants us to be and, and how He wants to use our lives and fill our lives with purpose. Let us go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, at times our lives can just seem to be overwhelmed by adversity or even by ease. Remind us this evening of whose we are and what it means to live in Your presence. Remind us, Lord, about the wonderful inheritance that You have provided for Your people. And so, Lord, we pray that You might strengthen us and help us to persevere in living for You, whether the, the times that we encounter are easy or whether they be difficult. And Father, as we look to get tonight at Your Word, we pray that we might have hearts that are open to hearing and understanding and allowing You to shape and mold us. Father, we pray that through Your Spirit that You draw us ever closer to You. We acknowledge, Father, that we need You and depend on You. So be with us. We ask all of these blessings, all of these requests, in the name of Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. Have you ever considered how difficult it would be to describe a simple banana to someone who's never seen a banana. It might go something like this. A banana is this sweet yellow fruit. Okay. Um, so a banana is sort of like a ripe Sweet pear. No, not, not exactly. Um, for starters, um, it does not have a skin like a pear has a skin. Um, a banana has a peel. Oh, so, so a banana is more like a lemon. No, um, a lemon peel is, is stiffer and more firm and rigid than a banana peel. A banana peel is, is softer 
And, and the fruit inside of a banana, it's white and it's firm and it's, it has a texture that's very smooth. Oh, so um, the inside of a banana is sort of like a custard apple. What's a custard apple? Well, a custard apple is sort of like an artichoke on the outside, but on the inside it's, it's white and it's smooth and, well, maybe it's like a banana. To describe something that another person has not experienced, to try to convey to someone something beyond their experiences can be very difficult. And when people tackle trying to explain the unknown in terms of something that is familiar, they often resort to language like, well, it's sort of like, it appears similar to. And when we hear that type of language, we can sense the struggle that someone is having to explain that unknown in terms of what is familiar. And if you've ever been put in the position of trying to to do this, you may have walked away from the conversation feeling, well, I gave them something of an understanding, some idea about it, but I'm not really sure that they really grasped what I was talking about. Well, John is one of those very few individuals within the Bible who was granted a glimpse into heaven. And in chapter 4 of Revelation, he attempts to explain to us something beyond our experience. He will try to explain to us what is unknown to us. Revelation chapter 4 and beginning in verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was standing in heaven and with someone seated on it. And the one seated on it was like Jasper and Carnelian in appearance, and a rainbow, looking like it was made of emerald, encircled the throne. In a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. They were dressed in white clothing and had golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came out flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne, and in front of the throne was something like a sea of glass, like a crystal. We can sense John's struggle as he tries to find adequate earthly descriptions to convey the heavenly reality he experienced. Ezekiel also experienced something of God's presence, and he likewise, we see him struggling to find suitable explanations. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. As I watched, I noticed a windstorm coming from the north. An enormous cloud with lightning flashing such that bright light rimmed it and came from it like glowing amber. From the middle of a fire. In the fire were what looked like four living beings. A little bit later. In the middle of the living beings was was something like burning coals of fire or, or like torches. The appearance of the wheels and their construction was like gleaming jasper and all four wheels looked like or all looked alike. Their structure was like a wheel within a wheel. 
Above the platform, above their heads, was something like sapphire, shaped like a throne. There was a brilliant light around it, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds after the rain. This was the appearance of the surrounding light. It looked like the glory of the Lord when I saw it. I threw myself down and I heard a voice speaking. As John and Ezekiel write, and they're trying to describe something of the presence of God that they have witnessed to convey some idea about their experience of being in God's holy presence. They, they struggle with words. But these rare events raise a, a question. If we think about it, it raises a very logical question. Why? Why did God grant John, for example, or Ezekiel, but why did God grant John the opportunity to perceive something of God's throne room? This is rare. Why would God do it? But we can begin to discover part of that answer by asking, what did John see? What was it that God wanted to show John so that John could write it and convey to his readers? What did God want people to know so that he revealed it to John? So we, let's turn back to Revelation chapter 4. And we discover John entering into heaven in a state that he will describe as being in the Spirit. What did John see? Around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. They never rest day or night. Saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful, who was and who is and who is still to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders throw themselves to the ground before the one who sits on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they offer their crowns before his throne saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And so one of the first things that we receive from this message, as we listen to what John is revealed about what he was granted a glimpse in heaven to see, is that there is this praise of God. And that God is worthy of glory and honor and power. Since He created all things, and it's by His will they were created that they exist. Nine years ago, <clears throat> Sophie and I moved to San Antonio. And like people who have lived on the East Coast and the West Coast and the North and far South, I had not known much about San Antonio. I knew about the Riverwalk. Most people do. I knew about the Alamo. But there was so much more I did not know about San Antonio. And, and one of the things I've learned since moving here is about all the different military bases that we have. And I've heard San Antonio been, being called Military City USA. And so if, there, if there's any city or group of people who ought to understand honor, who ought to understand 
what it means to be worthy, it ought to be those that live in this city. This is a picture of Outpost Keating. Located deep in a valley, 300 enemy soldiers descended on this outpost, forcing those within the, the outpost to defend what has been called the indefensible. It's been described as their fight to fight from the bottom of a paper cup. Army Specialist Ty Carter, early in that fight, would sprint across about 100 yards of open ground under heavy fire to, in order to join his fellow soldiers at the southern end. He later ran through enemy fire again in order to retrieve supplies. With, bu with bullets still flying around, he carried a wounded soldier to cover before returning fire himself. There's even report that he cut down a tree to prevent a fire from spreading. Now, because of what he did, it was determined that the soldier was worthy of honor. And not just any honor. His actions demanded that he be given the highest military honor that this nation can bestow. And so just a few years ago, he was granted the Medal of Honor. The point is that because of his actions, he deserved, he was worthy of honor. Returning to Revelation, we, in chapter 4, John sees 24 elders. They're dressed in white robes. They throw themselves before God's throne. And these 24 elders are worshiping, proclaiming, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And they give a reason. Since you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. It is precisely because of what God has done and who God is that God is deserving of honor and glory and power. And He's worthy of all of these things. And these elders are going to point to God's handiwork describing His worthiness. It is God who brought the universe into existence. Next slide, please. If you start in the bottom left, the farthest out that we can look, you start in deep space, and you, you, we use the, the, the greatest telescopes that we have. We see an immensity, and no matter how far we look into deep space, we see more galaxies and galaxies and galaxies. God has made this. And then we come closer into our own galaxy. And we look at all of the stars that fill our sky. And we come even closer into our solar system and we see the different planets and, and our sun. And we look at, begin to look at our, we spiraling smaller and smaller as we look at our earth and what is on it. And then we begin to look at life on this earth from the large life. And the waters teeming with life. And all of the diversity. And we're only now beginning to understand things in biology that deal with life. We've, we've known some of these things for maybe 15 years. Maybe 20. About the information 
And as we get smaller and smaller and we spiral into the smallest parts, we find molecular machines at the nano level. Molecular machines that are perfectly running, more efficient than anything we can build today. Astounding. And God is responsible from the smallest to the greatest. We don't even fully comprehend all of it. We have questions we can't answer. And the point is not whether or not we can comprehend it. The point is this is God's handiwork. And when we know who our God is, and when we realize what He has done, it evokes praise from deep within us. It's our God who makes that. And God is worthy of glory and honor and power because of His creation and what He has done. But that's not all. The, those 24 elders point that it's God's will, His intention and plan that is responsible for everything existing and coming into being. God's will intended for there to be reliable principles that would cause things to work the way they do. We call that physics. Physics govern the functioning and processes. Chemistry. His will determined what there would be and how it's going to work and continue. And accordingly, God is worthy of glory, honor, and power because of His will. God's plans are marvelous. But there's a detail about that worship scene that could easily slip past our notice. It involves those 24 elders who have fallen down before and they're worshiping the one who's enthroned. You see, those 24 elders are wearing white robes. And that detail is not insignificant. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, we discover who wears white robes. Who gets to wear a white robe? Those who are given white robes to wear are those who have remained faithful even when it costs them their lives. They're the martyrs. And so yet, we find these elders wearing white robes around the throne and they're not preoccupied with the injustice they suffered. They're not preoccupied with their lives being cut short. Rather, they're falling down before the throne and their focus is riveted upon something so much greater. It's the awesome presence of God and what He has done and His will, His plan. And they're praising Him. So what's the initial message that we get from, from John? That why, why God wanted to reveal to John something of, of heaven? What we learn is that this is who God is. And God is worthy. But this is not all of the message that God wanted John to see and to hear, to pass on. God also wanted John to hear and see more. And so we move into Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the front and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, beginning in the Old Testament, God has revealed his will. He's revealed his will to his servants, the prophets. And those prophets, they, they would give that will. And many times the prophets would also write down on a scroll God's will. What he was going to do. What he wanted people to know. Well, here's a scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. 
And it's written on front and on back. This scroll is used up. There's nothing else to be said. There's nothing else beyond this. This is everything. How important would it be to be able to open and know the will, the plan of God? We've already seen what God's will can do. It has caused creation to exist. What's written on this scroll, front and back? What is this will of God? And so, John says, I saw a powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break these seals? Who can tell us what God's will is? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so I began to weep bitterly because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And if you will, there's a crisis that's breaking out in heaven. Who's worthy to reveal God's plan, His, His will, His intention? And no one is worthy. No one has done something that's worthy of opening that. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Thus, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's one who's worthy. It's the one who died and overcame. It's because of what Jesus, the Lion of Judah, has done that He's worthy to reveal God's plan. And in Revelation, this language of conquer, overcome, and being victorious is repeatedly associated with paying that ultimate price in service to God. And John then sees in the very presence of the throne room a lamb that appears. He seems to have been killed. He came and and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they throw themselves to the ground before the Lamb. And they are singing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because, because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The Lamb is integral to the will of God. And because of what He has done in dying and making possible the furtherance of God once, He is worthy to open and reveal God's scroll, His will. Well, many people have given their lives to serve God, but the death of the Lamb is very different. He gave His life to make possible God's plan. And with His blood, with His death, He makes possible God's will to purchase people from every corner of this earth to belong to Him. It's because of His death on that cross and the power of His blood to redeem life that people all over this world continue to be purchased by God to become His. As our missionaries around this world proclaim Christ crucified, and as people are respond to the Gospel, 
and they rely on Christ, Jesus' blood furthers God's will. Because God does not want anyone to be lost, but for everyone to come to repentance. It's precisely because of what the Lamb of God has done that the Lamb of God evokes praise because of His death. The Lamb evokes praise because of His death. The living creatures and the elders have been praising God. They now sure shift their focus and begin also praising Christ crucified. Worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and praise. And then essentially, John sees all heaven break forth out in praise to the Lamb. It's because the Lamb is worthy. And um, there's this myriad of angels along with the living creatures and, and the elders are all praising the Lamb. The Lamb is worthy of opening and revealing God's will because of what He has done. And furthermore, this praising cascades out beyond this immediate scene. The praise of God and the Lamb cascades out and it spreads to all creatures in heaven and on earth. To the One who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. This is the glimpse that God gave John into heaven, into the throne room. What's the purpose? Why? This is rare. Only a few places in Scripture are, do people experience something of God's presence in this way. Why? Why now? What difference is this going to make to John's readers? Perhaps we can also begin an answer to that question when we consider the situation of John and the situation of his readers. At least we'll have a partial answer. Here's John's situation. I, John, your brother, and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony about Jesus. John is going through a difficult time because of the Gospel. He's in exile. He's suffering. He's being persecuted. Lots of God's people have been persecuted and God's not revealed something of heaven to them. But God chose this man on that island called Patmos as he's suffering and part of the kingdom to glimpse something of the throne room. But it's not John only who is going through difficult times. He's told to write a book. And it, this, this book is a message from Jesus to seven churches. And in every case, Jesus is going to tell those seven congregations, I know, I know exactly what's going on in your church. I know the situation of your city. I know what you're experiencing. And in what are these different churches experiencing? Well, in various ways, their service to God is being challenged. For some, it's persecution. So, 
the message of Jesus to some is, do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. The devil is going to have some of you thrown into prison so that you can be tested. To, to, again, Jesus' message is, you continue to cling to my name and have not denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city where Satan lives. Some of them have already seen and, and seen, experienced martyrdom, other Christians dying because they serve Christ. There are Christians who are being challenged. But for others, their service to God is also being challenged, but it's in a completely different way. It's, their situation is enveloped in the life of ease and luxury or, or the allurements of a very permiss, permissive atmosphere that threatens to squelch faithfulness to Christ. And there are, some are being uh, tempted to embrace an anything-goes-and-it's-all-okay sort of attitude. And so Jesus' message to other churches is, you say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked spiritually. To others, churches, he will say, you tolerate you tolerate a prophetess. There's this person who's teaching and by her teaching deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Yet her message is something along the lines of it's okay, it makes no difference. You're serving Christ. That'll take care of everything. Just, it's a fine. And significantly, Jesus' messages through John to each of these churches is essentially, if you will faithfully persevere to the end of your race, regardless of the barrier, regardless of the situation that you're encountering, you will receive the victory. And it's immediately after there's a tailored message to each of these congregations by Jesus that John is ushered into heaven. After these things, he, these Messages to the seven churches. After these things, I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. Ian Fair has accurately pointed out that the phrase, after these things, I looked, connects the following heavenly throne room scene with the prior messages to the seven churches. It's in view of the coming crises that they're about to experience. It's in view of the situation that those churches were currently undergoing that God is going to give John a glimpse into heaven to give them a tool to help them as they move forward. God's people needed to focus upon the impact and the message of that heavenly throne room scene. God is going to reveal something of His presence to inspire an awe that's going to put human trials into proper perspective. That's going to help them put their situation, whether it's, it's everything goes or whether it is <laughs> we're being persecuted. Put all of those, that range into perspective. There is a God in heaven who's enthroned, and this is what it looks like. The awe of God evokes perseverance. Now, the awe of God does not remove the trial, whatever that might be, whether it's ease or, or, or whether it's difficulty. But when we gain something of an understanding of the reality of who God is and what He has done and the Son and what He has done, 
It encourages us to persevere with a faithfulness in spite of the trial. It puts things into perspective. The awe of God evokes perseverance. Remember those other occasions when God granted a glimpse of something of His presence? Do you remember the situation of those individuals? Remember the prophet Isaiah? A prophet Isaiah was about to be given an impossible mission. How how much do do you want to hear your employer say, here's your task, go about it, you will fail. Keep it up. That's what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah one day goes into the temple, he sees something of the glory of God, he's overwhelmed. When God says, who will go? Isaiah is so overwhelmed with the presence of God, he says, here am I, send me. Then, what do I do? How long do I do it? God says, you keep giving the message. You keep giving the message until there's no one to respond to the message because everyone's destroyed. Because no one listens. The land's going to be destroyed and desolate. That's how long you keep being faithful. That's how long you persevere. The awe of God evokes perseverance. And God gave Isaiah a glimpse of of something of his presence so that Isaiah would have what he needed to persevere in a very difficult ministry. Remember the other one that sees something of the glory of God, Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel's situation and, and the people of God during Ezekiel's time. It looked like all hope in God and for his people has vanished. Judah's wheels have come off the wagon. The fabric of her life has been completely destroyed. For the first time in history, a pagan nation has not only come into Jerusalem, they've come in and they've leveled the temple. The worship of God in the temple is gone. There is a faith crisis. Cannot God spare? Cannot God save? Who is our God? Where is God? What reason is there to continue? And it's in the midst of those trials that God enables Ezekiel to see something of his presence and to relay that to the people of God. You see, the awe of God could help them persevere. And what about us? How would Satan try to get us off track? There's a range of weapons he's got. And you know what? He's got more experience at these than any of us have life. He knows how to use them. He's described as a roaring lion. He's described as an angel of light. He's cunning. He's the father of all lies. He makes statements. They sound good. They're seeds that destroy. How would Satan try to get us off track? How would Satan want for us to crumble and not persevere in faithfulness to God? Are some of us going through strong adversity? 
Or some of us going through difficult situations that he would hope that like Job, through suffering, through loss, through something that he can cause us to become so bitter against God that we'll walk away. Are some of us so richly blessed that we're tempted to take God for granted to begin to say, hey, and look to other things for our security and our strength. With immorality saturating our culture, are we tempted to say, it's not such a big deal after all? Glimpsing a little of God's presence can evoke perseverance. As mentioned this morning, our theme this year is City Lights. And regardless of our circumstances, since Jesus has purchased us and made us to be priests serving God, let us serve God through what we say and what we do to be lights in our city. And let us join. Join in. We have the opportunity to join in with that heavenly choir in praising God and in praising the Lamb who is worthy. God is worthy. He has created all things by His will. He's made this to exist. The Lamb is worthy. He has fulfilled and made possible God's will. And Jesus died to purchase us for God. If we have not, if you have not responded to the Lord yet, you have the opportunity this evening to put on Christ in baptism, acknowledging that He is Lord and you want Him to be your Savior. But in whatever way, may God bless you and may God keep you this week as we live before God and serve Him and join in with that heavenly choir and praise Him. Let's join in now as we stand and sing. That saved a wretch life.